You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who was your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can find out more at youcan'tbeneutral.com. You'll find all the back episodes there and you'll find a link to send me a message and a link to make a donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up is a piece called Sun Gets Enemy. Published at sites.lsa.umich, that's U-M-I-C-H, dot E-D-U. This is by Laden Osman. They said the men are enemies, the women are enemies, the children are enemies, the unborn are enemies, the cats are enemies, the fishing boats are enemies, the bakery and its bread are enemies, the hospitals and holy houses are enemies, the fuel is an enemy The water is an enemy. Yes, the water. For the rain fell, and the mud and the roads conspired against them. They sat in the night, stuck, and the full moon glared down at them, but only once since the start of their aggressions. The sun, however, refused to fix its face day after day. There was hardly a cloud across its furious brow. Oh, if they could take the sun, they would. For it defied them, empowered the people's batteries, who then lit each other's roads and rescues and surgeries, and further recorded and otherwise transmitted their devastation to others still, who immediately recognized their fellow civilians. So they turned to the sun and launched missiles which fell short and felt the rage of those they rendered enemies, but they knew it was not a righteous rage, for the sun was an impassive as a great mirror, and all their metal in all its deadly forms benefited them nothing. So they turned again, for this is not a new ritual. They turned in wrath against what the sun does, starting with the farmer Bilal, then to his olives and herbs, then the water that feeds them all, grasping wells with bulldozers like they sometimes grasp windpipes, but it was not enough. So they turned against everything and everyone the light touches, not only the giant red teddy bear in a forlorn square that used to be a city block, but they also hunted the child that had clung to it and the parents that had brought it home. But even that wasn't enough. So they waited for the night and removed all power but their own. But this did not decrease the light of the people whatsoever, nor their screams and prayers bouncing off concrete nor the cell phones discreetly, meticulously, miraculously transmitting this horror to everyone. Nor did it lessen the darkness inside of them, which was not the darkness of night or the void of outer space, which are each alive and natural, but another empty and matte thing we call darkness in English, because English hates people of the sun who are generally called dark or black. I'm discussing obtuseness here, I'm discussing wickedness. Anyway, the dimness did not feed them, so they tried to match the force of the sun with many tons of munitions. Yes, they wanted to recreate the Japanese flag over a Gazan sky, but it wasn't working. So they tried to recreate Hiroshima, but it wasn't satisfying somehow, so they settled on a line of fire visible from airplanes and satellites, the creation of which their people cheered each time until households were hoarse. Yes, they were cheering until other households were silent forever, because in fact they had killed off the last precious vessels of a particular DNA. And they sent down white phosphorus, which their people, safe in their homes, cheered on like fireworks, cheered like children enjoying bioluminescence in an aquarium, all in an effort to dazzle the eyes and flesh of every witness. It was all in an effort to imitate the sun, which they could not make answer to them, and which refused to cover their shame, 
and rose at its prescribed time despite their lust to bombard for one night plus one thousand for good measure. Then they also doused the battered ground because the earth too should never again receive sunlight and grow trees and flowers that may one day speak to their own seeds, to their own tender stalks. Let me be clear and say, to their own children, who they already imagined playing on reconstituted craters, playing in a driveway, or on a boardwalk that is, in fact, a mass grave. LaDon Osman is the author of Exiles of Eden, winner of the Hurston Wright Legacy Award and a Whiting Award, and the Kitchen Dweller's Testimony, winner of the Sillerman Prize. Her work in film includes The Ascendants, Just Sam, and Son of the Soil. Next up is a brief excerpt from uh, the book The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine by Alain Pape, excellent book on the history of the Nakba, the history of the devastation of the Palestinian people at the hands of Zionist militias. And here's a, a little bit from that book about the origin of the United Nation Relief in Work Agency, or UNRWA. In mid-1949, the United Nations stepped in to try to deal with the bitter fruits of its 1947 peace plan. One of the UN's first misguided decisions was not to involve the International Refugee Organization, IRO, but to create a special agency for the Palestinian refugees it was Israel and the Zionist Jewish organizations abroad that were behind the decision to keep the IRO out of the picture. The IRO was the very same body that was assisting the Jewish refugees in Europe following the Second World War, and the Zionist organizations were keen to prevent anyone from making any possible association or even comparison between the two cases. Moreover, the IRO always recommended repatriation as the first option, to which refugees were entitled. This is how the United Nations Relief and Work Agency, UNRWA, came into being in 1950. UNRWA was not committed to the return of the refugees, as UN General Assembly Resolution 194 from 11 December 1948 had stipulated, but was set up simply to provide employment and subsidies to the approximately 1 million Palestinian refugees who had ended up in the camps. It was also entrusted with building more permanent camps for them, constructing schools and opening medical centers. In other words, UNRWA was intended, in general, to look after the refugees' daily concerns. Next, we have a piece written by Rami G. Corey, published at aljazeera.com. In the last two weeks, the Israeli government put on a masterclass on how to use the Western media to spread fake news and propaganda and to justify anti-Palestinian actions taken by the United States and its allies. It worked, but only in part. On January 26, in a landmark preliminary ruling on South Africa's genocide charge against Israel, the International Court of Justice, ICJ, found it, quote, plausible that Israel is committing acts that violate the Genocide Convention and demanded that it take immediate and effective measures to enable the provision of urgently needed basic services and humanitarian assistance to address the adverse conditions of life faced by Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. If you want to hear that um, order in its entirety, I read that in the last episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Israel ignored this and within hours launched a deception campaign to weaken UNRWA, the UN's main humanitarian agency for Palestinian refugees, to inflict further suffering and death on nearly 2 million displaced, injured, sick, and starving Palestinians in the Strip. Israel passed on to Western media a quote dossier alleging that about a dozen UNWA staff in Gaza have been working for Hamas and even participated in the group's October 7 attack on Israel. After the complaint, 
media immediately relayed these unsubstantiated allegations to the world without bothering to do any independent verification. The U.S. and other countries suspended vital funding to UNRWA. Meanwhile, prominent politicians started calling for it to be shut down, as Israel has long sought in its efforts to reverse the recognition of Palestinians it displaced as refugees and invalidate their right of return to the lands in Israel stolen from them. None of this was new or extraordinary. Mainstream media organizations in the West, from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal to CNN and NBC, have long helped Israel spread its propaganda and achieve its political aims. For the past century, these organizations and their counterparts in Europe routinely disseminated Israeli narratives without questioning their veracity, while ignoring, downplaying, or misrepresenting Palestinian perspectives. Their efforts helped Israel win the war on narratives and continue its settler colonial assault on Palestinians with near total impunity. Well, until recently. Because the ugly tradition of Israel successfully laundering its lies and propaganda through Western legacy media is now being exposed and challenged and appears to be starting to dissipate in the information era dominated by new media. Indeed, since October 7, a flurry of independent investigations into events in Israel-Palestine and Western media reports about them exposed how Israel has been using legacy media organizations in the West to deceive the world, silence Palestinians and their, and their allies, undermine international law, obscure its systemic human rights violations, and further its settler colonial agenda. The initial Western media coverage of the terror allegations against UNRWA was perhaps the best example of this phenomenon. Israel suddenly came up with an explosive dossier on alleged links between Hamas and UNRWA because it wanted to divert attention from the ICJ ruling on its own genocidal acts and instead raised doubts about the crucial UN agency's credibility. Thanks in large part to the Western media's uncritical reporting, Israel's plan succeeded, at least partially, as it triggered significant funding cuts and congressional hearing in the U.S. on, quote, UNRWA exposed examining the agency's mission and failures. Members of Congress accused UNRWA of having, quote, long-standing connections to terrorism and promotion of anti-Semitism, seemingly based on nothing other than Israeli claims circulated in the media. They also introduced a bill titled the UNRWA Elimination Act, calling for the complete disbanding of the humanitarian agency and transfer of all its responsibilities to the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR. But independent reports and investigations quickly revealed major holes in the Israeli narrative that mainstream media had eagerly adopted and disseminated. As Western journalists outside the mainstream, Global South Media, like Al Jazeera, activists and scholars started to ask questions about the claims against UNRWA, Israel's story started to unravel. Unable to provide any hard evidence on UNRWA staff involved in the October 7 attacks, the intelligence agency that distributed the dossier said its information came from, quote, interrogations of Palestinian prisoners. The revelation further raised suspicions among journalists and scholars who follow the conflict, as Israel is known to use torture to extract false confessions from Palestinian prisoners. Realizing the global community is questioning their story, Israel's intelligence agents simply changed it and started to say they obtained the information through surveillance. As numerous countries stood up for UNRWA and Israel faced scrutiny about its allegations against the UN agency and shared its shaky intelligence documents with even more journalists. An analysis of the dossier by Britain Sky News revealed that these documents claim only six, not twelve as initially suggested, UNRWA staff entered Israel on October 7. It noted that, quote, the Israeli intelligence documents make several claims that Sky News has not seen proof of, and many of the claims, even if true, do not directly implicate UNRWA. After also analyzing the documents, Britain's Channel 4 reached a similar conclusion and said that the six-page long dossier, this, that's one of the things that stands out to me the most about this, this dossier is not, is not a compendium of a lot of evidence. 
this quote-unquote dossier, which is an embarrassment to the word dossier, is six pages long. Channel 4 reached a similar conclusion and said that the six-page long dossier, quote, provides no evidence to support the explosive claim that UN staff were involved in terror attacks on Israel. The terror accusations against UNRWA were perhaps the most striking example of exposing major Western media for uncritically circulating Israeli fabrications and propaganda since October 7. But it was hardly the only one. The Israeli claims about terror tunnels and Hamas command centers under Gaza hospitals, which were repeated by most Western media without any scrutiny or attempt at verification, were also proved to be baseless by several open-source investigations, in-depth reporting by local journalists on the ground, and extensive video evidence. In February, Al-Arbi-TV filmed what Israel claimed was a Hamas tunnel it discovered under Sheikh Hamad Hospital in northern Gaza, which proved to be nothing but a water well. Earlier in December, an explosive New York Times report on Hamas's weaponization of sexual violence during the October 7 attack was criticized for its weak sources and sloppy reporting. The paper of record eventually had to pull a podcast episode it had prepared on the subject. Speaking of the Times Sexual Violence Report and podcast, the Intercept investigative site said, quote, The critics have highlighted major discrepancies in the accounts presented in the Times. Subsequent public comments from family of a major subject of the article denouncing it, and comments from a key witness seeming to contradict a claim attributed to him in the article. The Electronic Intifada published several articles and podcasts with more details of the New York Times investigation of its mass rape story mostly confirming the lack of credible evidence or eyewitnesses in the stories that Israeli institutions, including the armed forces, shared with the global media. The progressive investigative website Mondovice explained in a report entitled We Deserve the Truth About What Happened on October 7, that researchers cross-referencing claims against the list of terror victims maintained by Israel's own Social Security Administration have shown that several horrifying stories first responders and Israeli military members initially told reporters do not reflect actual people or deaths. Britain's Guardian published an extensive report on how CNN is facing a backlash from its own staff over editorial policies, they say, have led to regurgitation of Israeli propaganda and the censoring of Palestinian perspectives in the network's coverage of the war in Gaza. The OCT-7 Fact Check Project, an exhaustive collection of claims, where they originated, who propagated them, and whether the evidence confirms or refutes them, put together by the Tech for Palestine Initiative, has also published the results of independent investigations into a dozen or so of the most dramatic Israeli accusations and reports about the Hamas attack, which were uncritically repeated by most of Western media, debunking most of them as untrue and lacking evidence. They show, for example, that some of the evidence Israel submitted to the ICJ hearing, evidence republished by Western mainstream media without question, was false. Quote, over the last four months, claims about October 7 have influenced the public narrative, they noted. Stories of atrocity, sometimes cobbled together from unreliable eyewitnesses, sometimes fabricated entirely, have made their way to heads of state and been used to justify Israel's military violence. As new evidence reveals that stories that Israel offers to media about Palestinians and Hamas are fabricated, unsubstantiated, or exaggerated, International journalists tend to spend more time checking the veracity of Israel's propaganda offerings and more time doing their job of reporting the facts and the truth. The bending of reality in these ways is par for the course for the corporate media. The corporate media is built and designed and maintained to serve powerful interests and to write and control the narrative that the people, that the public here, um, that, that are impacted, are touched by these news sources, and these are major, major news sources in the Western world, have far-reaching impacts and really help to encourage us to understand things, things in specific ways, which are very, very often not true.
and are virtually invariably in service to the people in power and the interests of those powerful people. Next up is a piece published from lemkininstitute.com. Statement on recent threats to UNRWA and the shift between potential complicity and direct involvement in the crime of genocide against Palestinians by several nations. Released on 31 January 2024. The Lemkin Institute for Genocide Prevention is deeply concerned by the decision of a coalition of several nations, the United States and Germany, in concert with Australia, Austria, Canada, Estonia, Finland, France, Iceland, Italy, Japan, the Netherlands, Romania, Switzerland, and the United Kingdom, to suspend funding to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, UNWA. This is a serious escalation of the crisis in Gaza and follows the International Court of Justice, ICJ's, first ruling in application of the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide in the Gaza Strip, South Africa v. Israel, which many hoped would slow the genocide. Further, it represents a shift by several countries from potential complicity in genocide to direct involvement in engineered famine. It is an attack on what remains of personal security, liberty, health, and dignity in Palestine. The Lemkin Institute for Genocide Prevention, LIGP, acknowledges this decision may have been taken in haste or without proper advice to national leadership, and if so, we urge a reversal. If no reversal is forthcoming, we condemn the decision to defund UNWA, and in doing so, we join a growing consensus of practitioners of international law and scholars of genocide in pointing out that this action is tantamount to increased participation in the ongoing genocide of Palestinians in Gaza and constitutes both a violation of the ICJ's recent ruling and of the participating nation's responsibilities under the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, a.k.a. the Genocide Convention. We further warn that withdrawing funding for UNWA functions as a fulcrum by which genocidal acts against Palestinians will spread from Gaza to other critical endangered zones for Palestinian life. During a period of famine, to implement either permanent cancellation or a pause of funding potentially puts states that have previously committed funds in violation of the Genocide Convention. On January 26, 2024, UNWA announced that it had received and accepted serious allegations from Israel against 12 staff members. These allegations, which were based on various forms of intelligence, including interrogations, claimed that these staff members had links to Hamas and other Islamist organizations and had been involved in the October 7 attacks. UNWA's leadership immediately dismissed nine of these staff members from their posts. One staff member is deceased. The identities of another two are awaiting clarification. Anwar urged accountability, including criminal prosecution, and began a formal investigation. Several nations responded to Israel's allegations by withholding their promised funding for the entire agency, an immediate withdrawal of hundreds of millions of dollars that could constitute up to two-thirds of Anwar's total budget. UNRWA employs an estimated 30,000 people total in Palestine, approximately 13,000 of whom are in Gaza. Currently, 10,000 Gazan UNRWA staff members cannot work due to incapacitation or displacement by Israel's bombardment of Gaza. Removing this funding from the remaining 3,000 core workers will lead to operational collapse. The threat to UNRWA's humanitarian aid is unprecedented and thus shocking. As the Commissioner General of Anwan notes, his agency took swift measures to terminate accused employees and begin a thorough investigation through the proper channels, the United Nations Office of Internal Oversight Services. Immediately, a coalition of vital, respected humanitarian aid organizations, including Save the Children, AFSC, Oxfam, and relevant Medicine du Monde chapters from France, Switzerland, Canada, and Germany, 
each urging reversal from their respective governments, expressed their outrage to donor states, warning that removal of these funds threatens food and shelter for more than one million people. The damage of any pause in funding will be irreparable. It is further shocking that the international media has not reacted to these threats with alarm. The Lemkin Institute urges journalists and editors to report robustly on the humanitarian and legal dimensions of withholding humanitarian aid to Palestinians. This is not the first time that UNRWA's funding has been suspended, but the current withdrawal of funding is constitutively different from previous suspensions, not just in consequence, but also in character. Past temporary suspensions of UNWA funding include the Trump administration's abrupt decision to withdraw aid in 2018, widely considered a failed blunt negotiating tactic to pressure Palestinian negotiators to renounce their right of return, a right guaranteed to all across many foundational elements of international humanitarian law, including the Fourth Geneva Convention, the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, which Israel has signed and ratified. This donor state suspension was reversed by U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, who at the time recognized UNRWA funding as a necessity for, quote, hope and stability for 500,000 Palestinian boys and girls. The Netherlands, Switzerland, and New Zealand also temporarily suspended funding in 2019. These suspensions functioned as part of a properly handled corruption probe prompted by an internal UNWA ethics report and tied to the implementation of UN OIOS recommendations. Indeed, these circumstances are so clearly different that New Zealand itself differentiates between them and despite initial incorrect reporting, will be continuing its current three-year funding agreement through June, while UNOIOS investigates. Former New Zealand Prime Minister Helen Clark responded directly to reports of her Australian colleague's decision to suspend aid by reiterating, this isn't the time to suspend funding, characterizing it as an inappropriate attempt to financially cripple UNRWA, with devastating impacts for the families living in Gaza. As a UN Special Rapporteur on the Occupied Palestinian Territories, Francesca Albanese notes, if carried out, these acts overtly defy the preventative measures ordered in South Africa v. Israel and entail either legal responsibilities or the demise of the international legal system. International lawyer Francis Boyle, counsel for ICJ Case 91, Bosnia and Herzegovina versus Serbia and Montenegro, which secured measures seeking to prevent genocide against Bosniak Muslims, issued an immediate statement that reads in part, quote, If these actions are carried out, it is no longer the case of these states aiding and abetting Israel genocide against the Palestinians in violation of Genocide Convention Article 3E, criminalizing complicity in genocide. These states are now also directly violating Genocide Convention Article 2C by themselves, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. Dr. Alonzo Germendi Dunkelberg, an international law expert at the University of Oxford, noted that in the recent ICJ decision, the majority found that preventative measures were justified and genocidal acts may be prosecuted, quote, precisely because Israel knows its restrictions on humanitarian aid are inflicting conditions of life that will bring about the physical destruction of countless Palestinians. He further finds that these funding threats what he terms the UNWA disaster, have now actively become part of the crucial intent debate regarding the application of the Genocide Convention to Israel's policies in Gaza. Beyond the transfer of weapons and funds, these nations are now joining in inflicting these conditions of life that will bring about the destruction of Palestinians. Beyond the deaths by bombing, sniper fire, chemical warfare, and autonomous weaponry, hunger dominates the Gaza Strip. This is not unique. Weaponizing hunger is specifically envisioned by the Genocide Convention as a method and indicator of the crime of genocide. Raphael Lemkin, the father of the Genocide Convention, was deeply concerned about the intentional use of starvation when he coined the term genocide, 
and campaigned for a codification of genocide in international law. In his book Axis Rule in Occupied Europe, he included the Nazi official General Feldmarschall von Rundstedt's praise for policies of, quote, organized underfeeding, noting that von Rundstedt observed to the Wehrmacht Academy that creating the conditions of starvation was better than machine guns as a technique of annihilation. Indeed, deliberate starvation of populations is a tactic that has been used by the most brutal militaries in history to attain strategic goals, and its criminalization represents a keystone of international humanitarian law. These recent decisions to pull funding from UNWA represent a concerted attack on that norm. As conditions deteriorated in Gaza, multiple stakeholders activated the Integrated Food Security Phase Classification, IPC protocols, whose Famine Review Committee found that as of January 2024, 500,000 Gazans were forced into Phase 5 catastrophic levels of hunger, imminent risk of mass starvation and death. This represents fully 80% of all people in the world currently at risk of death by hunger. Each malnourished child, starving family, and refugee camp without access to food is a tragedy. Collectively, it is a crime, the liability for which rests on those who actively and knowingly prevent access. The chief economist of the UN World Food Program, Arif Hussain, issued an unprecedented warning at the beginning of 2024, stating, quote, In my life, I've never seen anything like this in terms of severity, in terms of scale, then in terms of speed. Voice of America confirmed that a month's supply of food sits outside Gaza unable to get in. Humanitarian aid that does make it past the Israeli siege requires UNRWA logistical operations to reach those most in need. UNRWA also provides critical services and food in other areas of Palestine and the diaspora, including East Jerusalem, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, and the West Bank. The nations we are addressing represent more than 60% of UNRWA's budget for food education, and shelter. Disruption of aid inflicts suffering on all Palestinians and amounts to collective punishment for allegations made against 12 UN workers. The Lemkin Institute's warning and condemnation is in line with the words of scholars, activists, humanitarians, and concerned nations across the globe. Circumventing Israel's military censorship of the domestic press, A.L. Gross, an expert on international law at Tel Aviv University, expressed directly that UNRWA ought to be supported, not defunded, pleading that UNRWA plays, quote, an important humanitarian role that people depend on, addressing the needs that will continue to exist. Minister of Foreign Affairs for Jordan Ayman Safadi characterized these actions as collective punishment and urged countries that suspended funds to reverse their decision. Norway rebuked its NATO allies and neighbor Finland, issuing a statement that it would be continuing its funding for the purpose of, quote, saving lives and safeguarding basic needs and rights. Espen Barth Eid, Norway's Minister of Foreign Affairs, appealed to the conscience of his colleagues, urging them to reflect on the wider consequences of cutting funding to UNRWA in this time of extreme humanitarian distress characterizing Norway's decision as a principled stance to not participate in a coalition seeking to collectively punish millions of people. Ireland, too, issued a strong statement in opposition, expressing full confidence in UNRWA leadership. Hearteningly, the European Union stands firm against the coordinated abandonment, announcing it would follow the established protocols for investigation, that all ongoing funding commitments by the EU have been implemented and funding has not been suspended and with High Representative Joseph Borrell noting specifically that the proper response to a finding of wrongdoing would be strengthening internal controls. We hope that more countries, organizations, and leaders will join these voices to protect the lives of vulnerable Palestinians. The Lemkin Institute worries this action is timed in such a way to be made in retaliation against the ICJ's order for preventative measures in South Africa v. Israel. It certainly acts in furtherance of long-term goal of Israeli factions that hope to strip refugee status from UNWA's constituent populations. Tanya Hari, the executive director of Gisha, 
a Tel Aviv-based human rights organization, swiftly denounced the international coalition, warning the international community that this act represented part of the plan of an extremist Israeli government causing unfettered destruction and suffering and determined to unravel Palestinian aspirations for self-determination and even survival. It has nothing to do with any allegations. To her point, the Lemkin Institute reminds readers that Noga Arbel, a former Israeli foreign ministry official and currently the head of the right-wing Coalette Foundation, urged the emergency Israeli government in early January to take swift action on weakening UNRWA, stating, quote, It will be impossible to win the war if we do not destroy UNRWA, and this destruction must begin immediately. It was after Arbel's remarks that the Israeli security agency, commonly known as Shin Bet, announced its allegations against UNRWA staff. According to domestic Israeli news outlets, the ISA claims were in large part based on confessions extracted from the interrogation of militants captured on October 7. Whether or not it is true that the allegations were based on, quote, confessions, it is important to note that Israel routinely tortures Palestinian captives, a method that has been shown to produce unreliable and false intelligence. Following the October 7 attacks, the Israeli emergency government in fact took and renewed several steps to legalize a policy of mass internment and institutionalized torture of detainees. The Palestinian Prisoners and Ex-Prisoners Affairs Commission drew a direct comparison between Kitziat Prison and Abu Ghraib. Euromed Monitor has compared Sadeh Taman, the site of potential mass killings of Palestinian prisoners, with allegations of uncounted field executions and Israeli confirmation of torture deaths, characterizing it as a potential execution facility, to Guantanamo Bay. There are also reports that Antote Camp and Damon Prison are controlled through violence and alleged use of retaliatory sexual abuse towards Palestinian women. All are named specifically as in violation of Article 711 of the Rome Statute, the crime of enforced disappearance by the Palestinian nonprofit Adamir Prison Support and Human Rights Association. Prior to these measures, Shinbet was known even within Israel to seek false confessions under torture. Israel has systematically refused the International Committee of the Red Cross access to detainees. Euromed Monitor has called on the Special Rapporteur on Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman, or Degrading Treatment or Punishment and the Working Group on Arbitrary Detention to investigate Israel's treatment of detainees with charges that Israel is engaging in their, quote, liquidation. The states that have chosen to pause funding to UNRWA must understand the conditions of interrogation in Israel. Under international law, confessions extracted by torture cannot count as evidence, which Amnesty International notes is explicitly non-derogable, meaning it cannot be relaxed even in times of emergency. The Lemkin Institute for Genocide Prevention therefore urges Australia, Austria, Canada, Estonia, Finland, France, Germany, Iceland, Italy, Japan, the Netherlands, Romania, Switzerland, the United States, and the United Kingdom to review their national prohibitions on torture for guidance. While initial media reports spoke of the 12 accused workers, nine terminated, one dead, the identities of two unclear, Carrie Keller Lynn reported that the Biden administration was not driven by this publicly accessible information, but by a private intelligence dossier provided by Israeli intelligence. According to the Wall Street Journal, the Shin Bet dossier is based on signals intelligence, documents from dead bodies, and interrogations by Israeli intelligence agencies, and claims that while six workers could be tied to logistical or direct support of the attacks on October 7, potentially 10% of UNRWA's employees may have ties to several elements of Palestinian resistance. Apparently, these links are demonstrated by extremely tenditious means, including through family relationships. The legalization of kin punishment is considered a significant milestone in the construction of Israel's apartheid regime and is an assumption of collective guilt that is condemned under IHL. General Comment Number 29, Article 4 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights is clear 
that even a state of emergency cannot justify violations of customary international humanitarian law, including Rule 103, the Prohibition on Collective Punishment, which applies not just to military actions, but criminal, police, and administrative sanctions. Israeli actions specifically in the past have been crucial to establishing a bright-line understanding that this guarantee is applicable to, quote, all individuals, no matter what their status or what category of persons they belong, within or without conflict zones, regardless of a state of emergency. The revelation that President Biden and potentially other coalition nations relied on briefings from Israel intelligence that remain hidden from public scrutiny to make such a consequential decision highlights the need for both transparency and caution. The Lemkin Institute reminds readers of the Brom Report prepared for Tel Aviv University's Jaffe Center for Strategic Studies, in which Israeli Brigadier General Shlomo Brom warned of a likelihood that, quote, governmental bodies falsely manipulated intelligence information in order to gain support for an invasion of Iraq due to relations between Israeli intelligence and senior decision makers, presenting journalists and state partners an exaggerated assessment that was driven by an intelligence picture that was manipulated. This report was issued to prevent a repetition of similar mistakes. Several examples of overstated or incorrect intelligence during ongoing Israeli reprisals against Gaza have led some analysts to publicly warn that Israel's credibility is shot. The Lemkin Institute seeks to underscore that given these concerns about admissibility, credibility, and timing, a rush to judgment rather than a trust in protocol and methodical investigation as urged by the European Union may prove to be a mistake with lethal consequences. The safety and sanctity of refugee status in the region has been routinely violated by Israel. This is no longer an allegation, but forms a critical part of the South African case before the ICJ. Taking action against UNRWA as a whole represents an intensification of anti-refugee acts, including the 58 refugee camps reliant on UNRWA funding, core responsibilities, and daily operation. Dr. Nicola Purigini, international law scholar and the leading expert on human shields and conflict in the intentional destruction of hospitals, notes that this, quote, attempt to shut down UNRWA is clearly an attempt to shift the attention away from the ICJ genocide order. To destroy UNRWA reveals precisely genocidal intent, Israel's calculated efforts to intensify starvation in Gaza. The Lemkin Institute agrees, warning unequivocally, the funding threats to UNRWA's operations suggest the intent to destroy in whole or in part the Palestinian people via the destruction of the life raft provided by UNRWA. At the time of this statement, this is a fluid and active situation. One of the key tenets of genocide prevention is to anticipate and inhibit acts destructive to life. The three pillars of the responsibility to protect should guide all nations, and GenPREV invites action from all. The family of Canadian Minister of International Development, Ahmed Hussein, following his choice to directly participate in worsening conditions of starvation for Palestinians, publicly reproached him in a moving letter, including using a translation of the Somali phrase, Diga Kuma Dakako, does your blood not move? For hope going forward, we remind our readers of Craig Mokaber's public resignation letter. He wrote that he found power and a path forward in the principled stance taken in cities around the world in recent days as masses of people stand up against the genocide, even at risk of beatings and arrest. Palestinians and their allies, human rights defenders of every stripe, Christian and Muslim organizations, and progressive Jewish voices saying not in our name are all leading the way. All we have to do is follow them. Although all perpetrators of genocide have justifications for their actions, that does not make them just or legal. Lemkin warned specifically that genocide can be seen as a transformation of, quote, ancient barbarity into a principle of government, made up of acts imbued with, quote, sacred purpose that attack over time, the essential foundations of the life of national groups, so that these groups wither and die like plants that have suffered a blight. 
The end may be accomplished by the forced disintegration of political and social institutions, of the culture of the people, of their language, their national feelings, and their religion. It may be accomplished by wiping out all basis of personal security, liberty, health, and dignity. Lemkin's techniques of genocide noted above are all present in Israel's actions against the Palestinians of Gaza, the West Bank, and East Jerusalem, and are now assisted by the coalition to defund UNRWA. Celebrating these actions, Noga Arbel urged Israelis to go further, condemning Aharon Barak for his votes at the ICJ and challenging the very authority of the ICJ to enforce the Genocide Convention. In her estimation, Israel should kick UNRWA out of the occupied territories and Gaza because it allows terrorists to be born. Israeli Foreign Minister Israel Katz tweeted on January 27 to not only applaud Canada for joining the U.S. in defunding UNRWA, but to push for the end of UNRWA entirely so as not to perpetuate, quote, the refugee issue, by which he means the Palestinian National Group's post-Nakba restitution claims. He wrote, quote, Under my leadership, the Israeli MFA aims to promoting a policy ensuring that UNRWA will not be a part of the day after. We will work to garner bipartisan support in the U.S., the European Union, and other nations globally for this policy aimed at halting UNRWA's activities in Gaza. The Lemkin Institute urges international actors to remember the human beings who will be impacted by the punitive defunding of UNRWA. Yamin Hamad, a father of four, escaped Israeli bombs that destroyed his home in October. He and his children survived, and they now depend on food from UNRWA. Their remaining family sheltering in a converted UNRWA school building in Deir Abala, its smallest camp. To him and his children, the situation is clear. Those countries who suspended the aid to UNRWA, he states, have declared themselves partners in a war of famine against us. There is yet no metonym for the coalition of nations withdrawing funding from UNRWA, leading to a certain awkwardness in referring to this ad hoc group of states. Dr. Ghassan Abu Sida of Medicine Sans Frontieres, a veteran humanitarian who has worked in Yemen, Iraq, Syria, provided expert war crimes testimony and is a leading expert on reconstructing injuries to children after massacres issued a stark suggestion in the wake of Biden et al.'s announcement. Quote, With the defunding of UNRWA, a distinct axis of genocide has emerged. Individuals, institutions, and countries need to decide, are you with the axis of genocide or against it? We urge state leaders who have decided to withdraw aid for UNRWA to reverse course. We further urge populations around the world to take preventive action to ensure their countries are acting in accordance with the requirements of the Genocide Convention. We finally urge international legal bodies to prosecute all leaders who have chosen to participate in genocide against Palestinians in Gaza in addition to those who are responsible for complicity in the crime. Powerful statement there from the Lemkin Institute at lemkininstitute.com. And taking severe negative actions off of flimsy to non-existent evidence is not unusual. It is the case where when you have a predetermined goal as these empires and subjects of empires do, then you use or manufacture any excuse to then proceed with elements of, of reaching that goal. Um, it, it's why we invaded Iraq with the flimsiest of evidence, uh, you know, with the, the, the massive, massive factual lie of uh, Saddam Hussein, you know, having stockpiles of weapons of mass destruction and still producing weapons of mass destruction. Um, it is common practice. You, you seek out any flimsy excuse or you create, you create an excuse. You create an event that will 
allow you to claim that you're taking action for reasons other than the actual reasons that you're taking them. Caitlin Johnstone has a new piece specifically about this. Uh, this is published at caitlinjohnst.one. And this is called, Biden says the U.S. does not see conflict in the Middle East while actively dropping bombs there. The Biden administration has begun its latest bombing campaign in the Middle East, reportedly dropping over 125 munitions on more than 85 Iranian and Shia militia targets in Iraq and Syria on Friday. The mainstream press, here we go back to that manufacturing consent by the mainstream press of reporting the narrative that they want you to believe. The mainstream press have been falling all over themselves to describe the strikes as retaliatory in nature, framing it as a provoked response to a drone attack which killed three U.S. troops at a base on the border of Jordan and Syria, which is a bit odd given that this supposed retaliation is being directed at a nation which the U.S. government itself admits is not known to have been involved in said drone attack at all. While the U.S. Central Command says the strikes targeted Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, IRGC, Quds Force, and affiliated militia groups, the U.S. has already openly admitted that it has no evidence Iran was behind the drone strike. On Monday, Pentagon spokesperson Sabrina Singh admitted there was no information showing that Iran had actually ordered or orchestrated the attack, saying only that Iran, quote, bears responsibility for the strike because it has been supporting such groups in the region. This position was later confirmed by Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and President Biden himself. Asked by the press on Thursday how much Iran knew in advance about the drone attack by Iraqi militants, Austin said, We don't know, but it really doesn't matter because Iran sponsors these groups. Austin was almost telling the truth. Yes, it's true that the U.S. has no knowledge of any Iranian involvement in the deaths of those three U.S. troops. And yes, it's true that it doesn't matter to the U.S. whether it did or didn't. But the real reason it, quote, doesn't matter has nothing to do with Iran sponsoring militia groups which align with its interests. In reality, it really doesn't matter whether Iran was behind the attack because Iran is the most powerful non-U.S. aligned state in the Middle East. And for that reason, the U.S. has spent generations seizing every opportunity to harm and subvert it and its interests in the region. This is just one more opportunity for the U.S. empire to do what it always does in the Middle East. It's a bit odd, then, that the U.S. president announced the beginning of this new series of airstrikes with a statement which claims, quote, the United States does not seek conflict in the Middle East or anywhere else in the world. Conflict in the Middle East is what the U.S. empire does. The entire U.S. empire is held together by endless conflict, especially in the resource-rich regions where strategic control is necessary to retain planetary hegemony. The U.S. empire is conflict. Saying the U.S. does not seek conflict in the Middle East is like saying that Kardashians do not seek attention. It is like saying Jeff Bezos doesn't seek money. It's like saying the Hamburglar doesn't seek hamburgers. It's kind of their thing. To make such a ridiculous claim while actively raining military explosives upon the Middle East in, quote, retaliation for an attack which the people you're bombing didn't even commit. It's just extra icing on the cake of ridiculousness. From Gaza to Iraq to Syria to Iran to Yemen, conflict in the Middle East is the U.S. empire's bread and butter. The most murderous power structure on the planet continually paints itself as poor little victim of any backlash against its abuses and as an innocent passive witness to the suffering it orchestrates. But nobody who's involved in that many acts of violence has ever been interested in peace. And that'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can check out all the back episodes at youcan'tbeneutral.com. 
as well as those links to send me a message or make a donation. And you can get notifications when new episodes come out by following me in the Fediverse at movingtrainmedia at collectiva.social. You can listen to this and all my other podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. And now, a moment of Zen. Thanks for listening. Maybe we need some confession on the part of our government leaders. An acknowledgement, you know, like in Alcoholics Anonymous where they get up, get up before, you know, and, and confess, yeah. And maybe, maybe, you know, Cheney and Bush and the others should get up, you know, uh, you know form a group called uh, Imperialists Anonymous. Uh, and, uh, and tell the truth, and that is what they're, what they're aiming for in the Middle East is not democracy and not liberty. And they don't really care about the overthrow of tyrants like Saddam Hussein. Our government has supported tyrants all over the world. No, what they really care about, it's hard to say this, isn't it? Oil. It seems so mean, so cheap. <laughs> Although the oil won't be cheap. But, but it seems, you know, really it's just oil? Yes, it's oil. History comes in handy there. The history of American policy towards the Middle East has been based on the desire to control the oil resources of the Middle East. That's been true ever since the end of World War II. Ever since President Roosevelt got together with uh, Ibn Saud of Saudi Arabia and they made a deal. The United States will replace the, the old oil powers, the Dutch and the British and the French and the Middle East. And in return, the United States will support the Ibn Saud uh, government. Uh, talk about democracy. The Ibn Saud government, the Saudi government, government of Saudi Arabia, all these years has been as far from democracy as you can find. But we did not invade Saudi Arabia to give democracy to Saudi Arabia, because Saudi Arabia gives us oil and is our ally in our quest for oil in, in the Middle East. So yes, history is, is very useful you know, in, in all of these ways. Once we accept what the reality is, once we uh, look honestly at what we have done and what we're doing. And the question is, uh, you know, what do we do about it? And are we helpless to do anything about it? Uh, because that's, I think that's a great problem, that people, even when they oppose the government, feel helpless to do anything about it. And, and so we, we, don't see, we don't see today, although most Americans today are opposed to the war, and most Americans today are opposed to the Bush policies, we don't see a connection between that opposition and any kind of change in, in policy. Uh, we don't see the wishes of the people represented in what the government does. We are not seeing the kind of actions that took place during the Vietnam War where the passive opposition to the war became more than passive when it became civil disobedience. We're seeing the beginnings of that with soldiers who are refusing to go back to Iraq. We are. We've seen the beginnings of that with the families of soldiers saying that no, we are opposed to this war. But the fact is we do not have democracy in foreign policy. That's, that's a very important thing to acknowledge because we're always talking about bringing democracy everywhere, everywhere else. We do not have democracy in this country when it comes to foreign policy. We learn in school we have three branches of government and we have checks and balances and the legislator will check the you know, executive and the Supreme Court will see if things are con constitutional or not. That doesn't work in foreign policy. The president decides on war and Congress goes along like a bunch of sheep. Really, that's what they did in the Mexican War, that's what they did in the Spanish-American War, that's what they did in World War I, that's what they did in the Vietnam War, uh, you know, the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. The, Members of Congress know where the Gulf of Tonkin was when they voted for the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. Did they know what happened in the Gulf of Tonkin? Turned out to be a mess of lies. But they immediately voted to give Lyndon Johnson the authority to launch what then became a very long war in Vietnam. There's no, no democracy in matters of foreign policy. And uh, no checks and balances. No hope that Congress will will stop and say, hey, let's look into this. Let's see if this is true. And then, no. And no hope for the Supreme Court deciding that a war is unconstitutional. Uh, 
And we have not fought a constitutional war since the end of World War II. Constitution requires that Congress declare war. Congress has not declared war in any war that we have fought, of the many since World War II. Well, you learn in school, if something is unconstitutional, it's the job of the Supreme Court to say so and do something about it. No. After all, so who are the Supreme Court? Just because they wear black robes doesn't give them any special moral standing. They are political appointees, and they do the bidding of the people who appointed them. So if they don't have democracy uh, in the upper reaches of government, if we can't depend on checks and balances on representative government, that, well, obviously, I think, leads us to the thought that if we're going to have democracy, it depends on us, it depends on the people.